0: Hello, I'm Abe Beeson with our friend singer Sarah Gazarek back in the KNKX studios. She's leading her band for one more night at Jazz Alley in Seattle tonight. Sarah Gazarek is a Grammy-nominated jazz singer who got her start in the Roosevelt High Jazz Band here in Seattle. She's since made her home in Los Angeles, but she'll always be a Seattleite to us. Jazz Times Magazine called her most recent album, Thirsty Ghost, a major work that impresses on many levels. She's also part of the vocal quartet Sage, another connection to the Pacific Northwest, and we're thrilled to have her back. And before we catch up, let's hear some music We're going to hear Leonard Simpson and Scott Brown on uh, horns with uh, the next song But let's begin with the trio Stu Mendeman, Alex Bonham, and Jonathan Pinson at the Piano, Bass, and Drums It's Sarah Gazarek
1: To hide a miserable youth, but somewhere in my wicked, miserable past, there must have been. True. So somewhere in my youth, a childhood, I must have done If loving comes from loving just the way it should so a so Must have done something Must have done something
2: Please welcome the stage, Leonard Simpson and Scott Brown.
1: Cause I'd rather be all by myself instead of laughing with a crowd if I even glance when i'm offered new romance, i can't because i'm yours alone But how are they to know I'm looking high and low For love that used to be my And locks of auburn hair with ivory skin and eyes of emerald green. Your smile is like a breath of spring, your voice is soft like summer rain, and I cannot compete with you, a joy. He talks about you in his sleep, there's nothing I can do to keep from crying when he calls your name And I can easily understand how you could easily take my man, but you don't know what it means to me. Jolene, Jolene, Jolie. 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 Voice of men, but I could never love again. He's the only one for me joining me. Yeah. I had to have this talk with you.
0: Sarah Gazarek and her band in the KNKX studios. Stu Mindeman, Alex Bonham, and Jonathan Pinson, piano, bass, and drums. And we heard the horns of uh, Leonard Simpson and Scott Brown on saxophone and trombone. So wonderful to have
2: you back, Sarah. I think this is your fifth studio session performance. I can't believe it. I think the first time we did one, um, it was before you guys had the video series part of it and it was in a different room
0: right the, different the, the walls were blue
2: yeah and I uh I think a friend took like on an actual handheld camera took a video of one of the performances and it's still to this day like one of my highest viewed performances on YouTube <laughs> it's wonderful <laughs> to have memories. you back um so tell us a little that.
0: bit about the songs uh, you've uh, presented for our studio session today
2: yeah, so we, we uh, because we love Seattle, I love Seattle, I grew up here, as you mentioned, and it's, you know, just in my veins, it's always fun to share brand new music with our Seattle audiences, and so we've... Um, in, the, in the performances at Jazz Alley, uh, we've done four brand new songs. One is an original Sarah Gazarik composition. Mm-hmm. And um, another one is a new Jeff Kieser arrangement who did the Jolene, Grammy-nominated Jolene arrangement. And then we shared two new arrangements that we just performed. So the first one that we started with is a song that uh, originally appeared, I think, in The Sound of Music. And that was a really important song, in, or sorry, movie in my childhood mm-hmm. and you know, for a lot of different reasons. Um, associate it with my relationship with my mom and so recently I asked Stu our pianist if he would be willing to arrange um, something good which typically is associated with like romantic love and I want I asked him to arrange it and the purpose was to dedicate to my mother and the love that I feel that I don't deserve from her that just is constant Mm -hmm. and so that was um, a brand new arrangement of something good from The Sound of Music and then we continued on with another brand new arrangement. I asked our friend Alan Ferber, who's an incredible trombone player and arranger, um, who arranged a lot of the horns for Thirsty Ghost, um, if he would take on a new arrangement when we did our run of shows in St. Louis a few weeks back. And he joined us. Um, and I've always wanted to sing this beautiful composition called Vanity. Yeah, and I remember an-
0: that's an old Sarah Vaughan favorite. Yeah,
2: it's an old Sarah Vaughan favorite, and I haven't heard very many people do no. it. Really, truly, and it's a beautiful ballad with a beautiful lyric, and Alan brought it to the sound check, and I just was like, "It's so, it's a moving." And and Leonard was the first person to play it, and you know, hearing Scott Brown, uh, one of my uh, truly my first mentor in the jazz world, play it and have the opportunity to play it with him on stage just meant a lot. And then we closed our short little set with. sort of like a fan favorite these days. Mm-hmm. We don't have a ton of video performances of it online. So I thought it would be fun to do our arrangement of uh Jeff Keyser's arrangement of Jolene.
0: Yeah, that was kind of a fresh version with a feature for Jonathan Pinson, kind of Parton versus Pinson kind of version. That's there. right. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> wonderful. Um Thank you. Sarah, now we've talked a lot of times and I was trying to figure out what are we going to talk about this time. Mm-hmm. And then I discovered this wonderful uh recent review of a live concert you did in New York on Broadway World. Yeah. Not sure if you've read this piece. That's a
2: deep dive. Yeah, yeah. It- Wow, it was
0: just um, a gushing review of um, appreciation for you. It sounded like the person had been to their first jazz show. It was Maybe. just a revelation for that person. <laughs> and um, one thing and they noted in the uh, the article was uh, how your personality seemed to come through. Mm. You seem totally yourself on stage. Is that something that took took time for
2: you? Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I think it's something that is sort of at the crux of of this genre, you know, is that you're meant to sort of develop. Uh, music and understand kind of like your instrument and the lineage of this art form and develop uh, musical tools for the sole purpose of communicating artistically um, our human experience, you know, And, and I think that as adults, we all can identify that that's a constant journey to continue to look at yourself and figure out, you know, who am I and how can I communicate who I am to the people around me? And then when you add musical tools to the mix, it's just a, a, n- another level. So my hope is that I continue to add um, tools and and music and um, vocal and just like awareness as a human mm. um, as I continue to grow and develop. But I feel like the pandemic in particular was a really um, beautiful period of growth for me as an artist and as a vocalist. I spent a long time working uh, privately with a really incredible vocal coach and kind of developing my instrument more and spent a lot of time, I think like many of us, just, you know, thinking about humanity and, and my contributions or previous lack thereof. <laughs> um, yeah, so so it was really rewarding to see that this person who obviously had never seen a Sarah Gazark show before, focus on that. You know, you never really know what a reviewer is going to kind of like hold on to. And it always feels really great when someone latches onto the thing that is sort of how you identify and a really strong value for you and, and bringing myself to the music has always been something that I've striven for and, mm-hmm. you know, sometimes miss the mark and sometimes don't, but um, it was, it was really great to read that.
0: So yeah. Sure. I know a lot of people are, are frightened to death of being on stage. Yeah. They would rather jump out of a plane than get yes. on stage. And I wonder if you had a moment when, I, I know you've had some, some drama experience in your past, but yeah. was there a moment when you discovered that, you know, I'm up here performing as someone else and now I need to yeah. go up and be
2: myself? Yeah, you know, I mean, I think I a big part of Thirsty Ghost and sort of the reflection on the person that I had been was recognizing that in my 20s and early 30s, I was really striving for this, like, idea of perfection and brightness. Mm-hmm. And I had been told by a few mentors that, like, consistency was key and that you want to give people a really good time and you have to kind of, like, welcome them into the fray and deliver an incredible performance because... Uh, you know, they got a sitter and it has to be funny and it has to be compelling and it has to be, you have to make them feel better than when they uh, entered into the room. And um, also studied with another mentor that like, you know, tightness was a really important part of the musical experience and kind of like a polished sound and really consistent sound and in tune. And and um, I think that I, it was in a conversation with Kurt Elling after a show that he saw at Birdland in New York comes full circle, Mm -hmm. um, where he was essentially like, you are a deeper person than the music is at the moment. And there were a few, few reasons that he pinpointed and I wasn't really ready to hear it. But I remember after that, um, a performance in Seattle, some of our listeners might remember it was at the triple door. My mom had just been in this really, really bad car accident and she was in the ICU and I had gone to visit her and my stepdad had said, you know, you should, you should just do the show. She would want you to do the show. And I had never thought about the idea of like canceling a show, you know, yeah. cause artists are sort of pressured to ne- like to never be human, you know, show must like go you're, on, right? exactly. The show must go on. So I was like, okay, I'll, I'll try this. And it just was awful to be on stage in this space. That's so precious to me. And in a genre that prides itself in authenticity, um, singing, unpack your adjectives while my mom was in <laughs> the hospital in the ICU. And that was sort of a breaking point for me. Um, and I think there was like an encore and I was like, can lieu have an encore? can we, you know, hold my mother in prayer? And then like just immediately started crying on stage, you know, and I was just like, man, that was not horrendous to have a moment where an audience saw me as a human, you know, and sort of were welcomed into the fray of this experience wasn't a traumatizing experience for anybody. It was really scary and awful, but not for the reasons that I thought it would be. And that was, I think, what launched me into a period of my life when I wanted to explore whether or not I felt like consistency was something that I valued. I think humanity is the value system that I hold to, and that there is a level of dependability that you wanna rely on. You wanna make sure that there's a focus and a command of instrument and an understanding of what's happening musically so that you can be present, and that that's the consistency that I'm looking for. So my goal anytime I'm performing is not to be consistent and the same, but really to um, be present in what's happening and to trust that the things around me will be there if I need them to, and that I know what to do if they aren't there. Yeah. And that ultimately, when you know uh I sing something that is challenging for people to not identify with, but really like something that's not bright on the bright end of the spectrum, like we've all we all need that too. People yeah. want a reflection of themselves when they're experiencing art so that they can kind of process the things that they're going going through instead of just kind of hearing happy songs all the time, you know, and I yeah. think that was yeah, that was a long long winded way of saying yes.
0: Well, that presence on stage—that uh, it really um, makes the connection with the audience so much better. You talked about how, as much as that was a terrible show, you made a really deep connection with an audience. And I wonder, after two years of not having that audience in front of you, um, this must feel like you're getting some of that vitamin B shot of audience connection now.
2: Absolutely. Yeah, I remember the first few times I performed in front of a computer screen, like via Zoom or you know live Instagram or something. It was just so awful like just so sad to sit in front of a screen and like try to communicate these things and trust that people were receiving them and not have any information of whether or not it was being received. And then you just kind of get used to it. You know, it's just like, well, this is what we do and I'm going to do it. And, you know, and the cool thing about that is that it actually made me turn towards the musicians around me Mm. and to realize that like their energy is equally important and that I do actually want to feed off of and, and into that energetic connection almost as much as the audience. And so then to kind of have developed that, awareness and kind of, you know, value also, um, taking that to the stage has just kind of opened a different level of musical experience and then kind of welcoming the audience into that, that fray. Yeah. It's like... A B-157 shot.
0: <laughs> <laughs> um, now, a lot of people did a lot of different, musicians did a lot of different things during the pandemic, kind of the the time off uh, break we had. Um, were you very productive? What did you uh, manage to accomplish or not accomplish or reevaluate or, yeah. or think freshly about?
2: Well, you know, I think like a lot of people, I baked a lot, you <laughs> know, learned how to make bread, made really, really good bread and good pizza dough. Um, I spent a lot of time, uh, with my dog and my husband outside, which was really, really nice. Um, and then in terms of like production, I, I identify as a musician sort of as more of a collaborator than like an independent creator. Um, which was hard because a lot of those collaborations have typically happened in the same room. Like when Stu and I were arranging a lot of music for Thirsty Ghost, I would fly to Chicago to work with him and he would fly to LA to work with me and we would have these kind of long weekends together. And so that was tough to sort of conceptualize my next record um, in the middle of a pandemic while I was by myself. And, and I also really truly believe that you know, an album should be an authentic ex- expression of an experience. And in the pandemic, I was like, "This is miserable. I don't want to <laughs> write a record about this." We're all experiencing this together, but I did have this sisterhood um, that was meant to be long distance from the gate because two of our members in uh, this vocal group that I'm in called Sage to live here in the Pacific Northwest and two live in Los Angeles, and so. Um, From its beginning, we were in this long distance relationship where we were collaborating and recording long distance and sending feedback back and forth. And so we really ramped things up in the pandemic and launched this Patreon page um, and, you know, started to connect with our audiences that way. And we were releasing... Um, songs every month and music videos every month. And we were recording long distance. So I had to learn how to record myself in logic and edit my vocal stems and, you know, understand like recording rigs and all of that stuff, which was definitely a skill that I learned (laughs) in the pandemic. And then I also, um, because I'm not trained in vocal arranging, like the orchestration of who sings what note, um, that was left up to Amanda Taylor, who is one of our Seattleites. And then Aaron Bentlidge, who's one of the Los Angeles gals. And so I wanted to volunteer to be the person who tried to put together some of these music videos and yeah. ended up in the pandemic, um, editing three of our long distance music videos and then creating a stop motion music animated, stop motion animation music video, um, for this collaboration that we did with Gerald Clayton last year. Um, yeah. So, so I would say the big, big t- skill that I'm carrying with me, like I'm not really making pizza or bread anymore. Yeah. You know, I am still hanging out with my husband and my dog, joyfully so, but, um, understanding how to record myself at home and throw tracks into logic and kind of understand, there's still some things I'm still wrapping my head around like compression. I'm like, I don't know what that is. Um, but it's great. It's, you know, I feel like an, uh, even more strong independent musician, you know, to be able to Yeah, I can record that at home. I know what to do.
0: (laughs) Uh, So uh, albums out that uh, your audience can look forward to. Uh, Sage, uh, singles have been coming Fast and Furious. Album soon and and for Sarah Gazarik album.
2: Yeah, so we, um, for Sage, uh, you know, we've been collaborating long distance and have been releasing a couple singles online. Uh, We have, I think, two or three uh, on iTunes and sort of in anticipation of this big album that we're recording. And at the moment, we're just in the mix phase. So we went into the studio in October of last year, um, which is crazy to think about. And we just finished wrapping the vocal tracks. I mean, when, when I make a record and it's just me, it takes three days, maybe four, Um, to do the band and then my vocals and then it's off to the races. But with Sage, it's, it's the band and then each member of Sage is recording two tracks of our vocals and they're panned right, left and then we also have solos and then we also have editing and then you send it back and then you have to do it again. It's wild. It has taken so long and it's not for lack of work. It's just that it's huge to make a record like that. Yeah. Um, so that record we're hoping and anticipating in March of 2023. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Woo-hoo! And then for my stuff, I'm at the moment just kind of like investigating where my muse is at at the moment. So yeah. I have some new stuff that we're sharing with our audiences at Jazz Alley tonight. Um, and uh you know just kind of seeing where it goes I I have sort of gotten hooked on the idea of finding songs that are based on things that I want to express in the moment and then once I have that repertoire together going like well what's the concept here and so I think I have the seed of a concept that I'm really excited about that I won't put into the ether yet because (laughs) I want to hold on to it for a little bit but I think it's pretty special um but the songs that we're Kind of exploring at the moment. We have something good, which is sort of like a love letter to my mom. There's this song "Vanity," which is sort of a reflection and recognizing, you know, the challenge in loving someone who doesn't love you back. Um, and I have this original composition, which is an expansion of a Tennessee Williams song, which was brand new for me. I've never done that. I should have mentioned that in the pandemic. I have forced myself, forced myself to um, put like my, my compositional uh, brain into things. I usually just write lyrics and love writing lyrics, but mm-hmm. this was the first time I was like, you may not write the lyrics. You have to write the song. So that one was one about sort of like the yin and yang of marital relationships. And, um, and then we have a new Kizer arrangement, Jeff Kizer arrangement of, um, that, uh, Fiona Apple song, um, extraordinary machine. Hmm. Yeah. Which is sort of like Excellent. in, um, a dedication to like women and how awesome they are and people underestimating us.
0: A lot of time uh, during the pandemic and the lockdowns we spent uh, kind of on our other passions, our side uh, things. Uh, One of mine was collecting more and more records. I know for you, it's shoes, right?
2: Well, yeah, listen, <laughs> I didn't know. I had no idea. I've always, you know, I've always been a fashion person. I love fashion. And um, my sister sent me a pair of Nike Air Max shoes in the middle of the pandemic. And I was like, these are weird. I don't think I like these. And then they just became a thing. And then I like wanted more. And now I probably have like five or six pairs of Nikes just because of my sister. But I wish it wasn't so, Abe. Why are you so good at digging? <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, I want to finish with a, a little bit of the big news uh, back here in Seattle. Uh, your old friend Scott Brown is just retired, and yeah. it's so wonderful to hear him playing with you. Um, uh, w- w- what do you think about Scott Brown's career, and do you think there's any education in Sarah Kazark's future?
2: Well, you know, I mean, I'll start just by talking about Scott and... and realizing what a gift it is to have gone to Roosevelt and to have just thought I should audition for everything that feels fun, you know? And I had some friends who were in the vocal jazz program and I remember on day one, I said, he asked like, who, who, who can say what jazz is? Like who can you know, tell me what jazz is? And I raised my hand and I was like, Kenny G? And he was like, oh, welcome, I'm glad you're here. <laughs> you know, and then spent the last three years uh, in my time at Roosevelt, um, just continuing to fall in love. And truly it was, a lot of it was the music, but a lot of it was Scott's passion. You know, a lot of it was his love of the music and how much of himself he was willing to give to us every single day and how much time he dedicated to giving us as many opportunities as possible to continue to fall in love with the music, went to countless festivals and different, um, performances and did a lot of listening and, um, a lot of, yeah, like so many, so many different things that took so much time and energy from his life and, um, I remember specifically walking out on stage at the Essential Ellington competition in New York and just feeling so comfortable and realizing like this maybe is what I could do. Like it's weird that I feel comfortable sitting, you know, at Lincoln Center in front of thousands of people and just like joy, you know. But a lot of that has to do with the joy that Scott felt and um, how much he instilled the music in us. It was not a performance, you know, with uh, matching blue and green outfits with, you know, cummerbunds and singing Somewhere Over the Rainbow. We were, like, transcribing Miles Davis solos and writing lyrics to them. And, you know, I knew who Count Basie was and so many different artists. By the time I got to college, I had an incredible sense of swing. I mean, and style. People were like, where did you come from? Because I I had this sophisticated understanding of the genre and not just, like, this academic approach and understanding how to, like, improvise. or I know what middle C is. It was, like, truly what matters in the genre. It's, like, the heart and and you know the authenticity of it and i am like one of thousands right truly you know it's like thousands of people were inspired and and led to this new part of their life through scott and there are a handful of people a large handful of people who went on to be professional musicians which is rare i mean that's crazy to like teach and then foster and then launch a whole like genre like Um, demographic of like yeah yeah. generation thank you of of young musicians but um, around the world like truly around the world people know about Roosevelt High School and know about the Seattle pre-collegiate education scene specifically because of Scott and so it means a lot to have the opportunity to um, be in the same space as him you know and to share the stage with him and and to kind of reminisce about different things and he's been such an important part of my life and he's like a parent you know every time I I perform he has like perspective because he's seen every single iteration of, of what it is. And we've had some really great conversations about that. Um, yeah. And so because of that, it's a it's a thrill to, to work in education. I, I teach at USC in Southern California and um, have taught there for about 12 years. And it's a different thing because I'm working with students who have already had that fire lit in them. Um, and a lot of times people walk into... Scott's had walked into Scott's classes without understanding of what it is, and and so it's his it was his job to like light a fire in them, um, and he knew how to do that. But I think what I do carry with me um, is a really strong identity as a jazz musician before a choral educator, um, which is great because we talk in my classes a lot about like context of Black American music and history and lineage and. Um, different artists and where things came from and understanding why we do the things that we do and how to utilize all of the human tools that are available to us instead of just thinking about chord structures and scales and a lot of the stuff that people can get wrapped up in music academia. Um, And a lot of that has to do with my upbringing, you know, and recognizing the importance of listening and talking and, um, you know, thinking about like those kind of like micro, like very, very small things that, that bring the music alive Mm. that we can often forget about when you're just focusing on the music on the page. Um, so I think I'm a little bit different as an educator, um, versus some of my friends who came through like music education and kind of more like academic based, um, choir programs. Um, but that's because Scott is a trombone player who would just like shout at us if we weren't swinging hard enough and then we (laughs) would just try to swing harder. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it's 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 interesting, like, bird's eye view what I do in the classroom and realize what is, like, a Scottism because it happens all the time. Um, but definitely music education and working with, with kids in schools and kind of, like, doing mas- master classes in places um, when we're touring and, you know, pre-collegiate outreach. Super yeah. important. Continues to be incredibly important because there's so many kids out there who, when you say, what is jazz, like, they say Lady Gaga, you know, <laughs> which is great. And I'm grateful for that, that people associate something that they love um with jazz but it's really a thrill to kind of like explain what it is and kind of show them and play for them and have them go like oh my god i want to do that (laughs) it's
0: great well, Sarah, it's a thrill to have you back in our studios uh, for a fifth time, <laughs> and we can't wait for number six. This yeah. is so much fun. We're uh, very excited about the upcoming Sage album and a new Sarah Gazarek effort also in yeah, the works. Yeah, thank you. Um, Leonard Simpson on sax, Stu Mindeman, uh, Alex Bonham, and Jonathan Pinson, piano, bass, and drums with our friend Scott Brown at the trombone. And I want to say thanks to everyone uh, involved in the KNKX studio sessions, our audio engineer Brian Moynihan, Michael Goode, and his Vibe Vision Seattle uh, team uh, doing the video today. Thanks to Brenda Goldstein-Young, Adrian Flores, and our KNKX Studio Session crew. Support for KNKX comes from Jim and Bierta Falconer, supporters of Studio Sessions and a free, independent, and energetic press who urge listeners to get involved in their local community and to support KNKX, and from OB Credit Union. I'm Abe Beeson. Thanks so much for listening.